Before we come to our text this morning in 1 Kings 19, 9 through 20, have you ever played sports or been in a large group like a choir or band? Have any of you, anybody? I'm, I'm pretty sure almost, almost everyone at some level has been in something like that. Uh, you've likely had a coach or maybe a director. Have they spoken loudly to you before? Have you ever had that experience where they've been like, hey, attention, or here's what I need you to do? Sometimes they might even yell, right, because it's loud or they uh, need to project a, a long way. Maybe you've had a parent yell to get your attention so you didn't run out in the street and get hit by a car or touch a hot stove, your coach or director might yell to get your attention so you understand something that you did right or wrong because they're trying to help you improve. I've done a little bit of yelling in my day as a coach. Um, and when coaches yell, they're getting your attention to help you understand what you need to do, whether you did something right or you did something wrong so that you can improve. Your parent might yell because they want to protect you from harm. Parents don't yell for any other reason, but um, we often expect important information to be loudly or forcefully explained, but it doesn't have to be. Your coach or director can also come alongside you and speak softly, maybe putting their arm around you as you're coming off the field to explain or encourage you quietly. Your parent could also, once the danger has passed, come and scoop you up into their arms and quietly explain the danger that you experienced and why you need to be careful and not do that again in the future. And not only do we expect inform important information to often be loudly or forcefully explained, but we also often expect God to get our attention or show up or give us direction in some big and unmistakable way. And this morning in our text, we see that our expectations are not always correct. And in fact, God often gets our attention, shows up, or gives direction in small, quiet, and even subtle ways. So let's read 1 Kings 19, 9 through 20. You remember Elijah was in the desert, has been strengthened by the food the angels brought to him, and he sets out on a journey of 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' He said, "'I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts.'" For the people of Israel have forsaken their covenant, thrown down their, your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand at the mount, on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by with a great and strong wind, tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the, fi the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Maleo, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we might be not only conformed to your word, but transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing our series on the life of Elijah titled, The Lord is My God. And last week, we were in the first eight verses of chapter 19, where Elijah flees Israel for his life. He leaves his servant and goes off into the desert to die. Yet God sends an angel to care for Elijah by feeding him and giving him water to drink. And from our text, we were asked the question, does our view of God change according to our circumstances? We saw that the God of victory on the mountain is the God who meets us in our distress in the desert. The God of victory on the mountain is the God who meets us in our distress in the desert. And this week, Elijah gets up after being ministered by the angel and heads to Mount Horeb. Now, you might not have heard of that mountain before, but I think you probably have. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the mountain where Moses met God and received the Ten Commandments, where the people of Israel saw and heard God in a cloud of thunder and lightning, where the earth shook, where the wind blew, and they were afraid because of the power of God. 
Many believe that Sinai is to be found down in the southern region of what we call the Sinai Peninsula today. So Elijah must travel another 200 miles from where he laid down in the desert to die. Forty days and 40 nights reminding us of the trek of the, in the wilderness of 40 years of the people of Israel. As we come to our text, we are confronted with the question, where or how do we expect to hear God? Or where or how do we expect to find God? Many of us have maybe different answers to those questions. As I mentioned earlier, we often expect to find or to hear God in some majestic, powerful way, right? We often, like, the, like Moses on Mount Sinai or the people of Israel, we kind of expect that God would come and He would, in power and might, show Himself, right? We often will say sometimes, well, if I just had a sign from God, if God would just do this, if He would just do that, then I would know, then I would believe, And yet, our text seems to indicate that while God at times shows His power and might like fire falling from heaven and devouring the altar and the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, God often comes to us, speaks to us, in a much different way through His very Word. And that's our main point and our only point today is that the Word of the Lord is our comfort and strength. The Word of the Lord is our comfort and strength. Elijah will experience this as he's experienced it before in a new and profound way. The Word of the Lord is our comfort and strength. And we'll just walk through our text and see how the word of the Lord is our comfort and strength. So Elijah goes to Horeb and finds a cave to stay in. Elijah is, it's implied that he is commanded to go to Horeb or Sinai where the great Moses ministered. And Elijah needs to be reminded that he is serving the Lord the one who is in fellowship with the patriarchs and Moses, Elijah needs to, is sent to Horeb to be reminded of who God is. He's sent there to be reminded of who he serves, that their cause, the cause of the patriots, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses, of Joshua, they served the same God that Elijah serves. This is a, what I'd like to call a great cloud of witnesses moment in Elijah's life, right? The great cl cloud of witnesses that the writer of the Hebrew, Hebrews reminds us of in chapter 12 when he says, since then we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses pointing back to all of the history of Scripture 
Let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. Elijah was summoned to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai, to, in a sense, be reminded that he is following in a great line. He is a part of a great cloud of witnesses of Yahweh, of the one true God. We too, as followers of Jesus, have that great cloud of witnesses before us. We have those that we see and read on the pages of Scripture. We have those who have come before us over the centuries since the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. In fact, tomorrow we remember those who have gone before us in the work of reforming the church. We have those who are a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us that give us strength and encouragement that the promises that they held fast to are ours as well. Just as Elijah needed to be reminded that the promises of God that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua held fast to, they were for him as well. And those promises are for us. We are reminded by that great cloud of witnesses. And he's there being reminded of this, and God asks him an interesting question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Seems like a strange question, doesn't it? Because the text implies that God told Elijah to go to Mount Horeb. You know, my, my response would have been like, well, you told me to come here, <laughs> so I came. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why is he there? Right? Think about what we saw last week, right? He has fled because he believed that he had failed, that no one was listening to him, that his ministry was over. He was afraid for his life, but then he wants to die because he believes that he is no longer a successful prophet of God. No one has listened to him. His ministry is over. He wants to die. So why bother going to Horeb? And the question is intended to make Elijah fully aware of who he is, where he is, why he's there, and what brought him there. And that is the Lord who is in charge of his life and work. What are you doing here? I think it's a question, not necessarily just here, though that might be a question to answer. But what are you doing here? Our God comes to you and me and asks. And he does that reminding us be fully aware, aware of who he is, 
where we are, who we are, and why are we and why we are in need of Him. So God comes to us this morning, just like He did to Elijah. What are you doing here? Are you aware of who God is? Where you are? Why you're there? And that most importantly, that this God who asks you, what are you doing here? Governs our life and work just like he did Elijah's. And so Elijah tells God what's wrong, right? He listed off, Israel's apostate, they kill the prophets, they're not worshiping in the covenant faith that, that you've commanded. Apparently he had hoped that the Mount Carmel episode, the melee on the mountain would produce a final victory over Baal and Baal, Baalism. And what we might kind of look at and think is kind of just a merely religious rant is also somewhat political. You see, policies in ancient world may look like religious persecution in our day, but in the ancient world, they were usually political in nature. You see, the agenda of Jezebel was to enthrone Baal as the king and national god of Israel instead of Yahweh. This would have been done out of her loyalty to Baal. And the prophets of, of Yahweh would have, of course, contested this move on religious, political, personal, and traditional grounds. They would be most capable of mobilizing a, a formal and large-scale opposition among the people. And so on political grounds, not just merely religious grounds, the prophets had to be eliminated. Elijah, in a sense, wanted Israel to be great again. And he was disappointed when the political way didn't work. Right? It's implied, if you remember in the text, we didn't really see this too much, but it's almost implied that Ahab actually has a change of heart after the Mount Carmel experience. Right? That Ahab is so captivated by what has happened, that he goes to Jezebel and tells her, it's almost as if he is evangelizing Jezebel, right? Trying to convince her that, hey, Yahweh, I think, is, I, I think he's the real deal. I think he's the true God. but Jezebel won't have anything to do with that, right? And because we see in the text that Ahab does this, and it's implied that he did have some sort of aha moment at Carmel because Elijah ran ahead as a herald, ran ahead of him proclaiming what God had done. And yet the political answer wasn't the answer. Getting the king on his side wasn't even enough to do what Elijah longed to see happen. 
It's a reminder to us as well that the political answer might seem the easiest or the quickest or even God's plan for reform. But what we see in the text is it is God's Word, not with power, might, or overwhelming forces that it's the one is what changes and brings about change, what protects, right? It is with the word, not with power, might, or overwhelming forces that Elijah is challenged, right? God comes to Elijah not with might and power, right? He's not in the wind. He is not in the earthquake. He is not in the fire, those things could easily destroy and take out and bring about a new kingdom. But he comes in a quiet voice, in a gentle way, not in power and majesty as we might think of it, but in a quiet voice. So regardless of the meaning of those natural wonders, it is God's word alone that will heal the prophet in this moment of crisis. It is God's word alone that heals us. It is God's word alone that brings healing to people and communities and nations. In verses 11 through 18, we see the word of the Lord is our comfort and strength once again. Yahweh, the true God, makes plain to Elijah that he is not simply a hot-blooded warrior def defending and throning, dethroning kings on an arbitrary whim like the gods of the ancient Near East. He has an agenda for history. He is, has a long-term plan that is being carefully worked out. And once the fire and the storm and the earthquake are passed, the plan is explained to Elijah. Right? Elijah kind of makes the mistake that he was indispensable. Right? Uh, it's interesting that he was God's kind of last and only hope. Right? Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. No, he's, Elijah wasn't God's only hope. And neither was Obi-Wan. Right? He has this idea that he's the one. That everything else, everyone else is gone. He's the one left. And everyone else has turned their back on God. But by announcing these three successors, God is making it clear that he has a plan. Right? The Armenian king, Hazael, will be God's instrument of judgment on Israel. Jehu will become king of Israel and in the process bring God's judgment on the house of Ahab. And Elisha will continue the prophetic work of Elijah. Right? The Lord's word comes to Elijah and reaffirms God's uniqueness over all of the gods, his sovereignty over all nations, and the importance of the prophetic word, right? God tells Elijah to go back the way you came, to go back into active service that I've called you to do. 
right? And this command comes along with a reassuring promise to Elijah, right? God lets Elijah know. He lets him kind of to see behind the curtain a little bit that he has selected or protected 7,000 who have not bowed their knee or kissed Baal. He reminds Elijah that he's not alone. He reminds him that God's, that his word cannot be silenced. It is God, his word, that produces the remnant, that protects the remnant, that empowers the remnant. As a part of this remnant, Elijah can expect God's protection and empowerment. Right? You see, when I said it was kind of, uh, Elijah kind of makes an assumption that he's the only one. I mean, even when Elijah says to God, I'm it, right? Everyone else is gone. I'm the only one left. All the prophets have been killed by the sword, and I, even only I, am left. They seek my life to take it away. Elijah's exaggerating, right? We know from several weeks ago when Pastor Alex preached that Obadiah, he meets Obadiah, and Obadiah says, hey, I've, you, haven't you heard about me hiding and protecting a hundred prophets of God? Right? Elijah knew that there were others besides himself, and yet he exaggerates that he is alone, that he is the last one. But God reaffirms him and not just reminds him of the hundred, right? He doesn't just remind him. I say, hey, Elijah, remember Obadiah said that he hid a hundred prophets? There's a hundred like you. No, the Lord uses the 7,000 to remind Elijah of God's power of God's protection of God's care for his people and Elijah's included in that Elijah experiences and hears the word of the Lord as his comfort and strength and we're reminded, no matter what it looks like around us, right? There are times, right? It sometimes seems, feels like we're the only one, right? We come to God and we're like, God, we're the only one. Whether it's something we're experiencing, whether it's what we see in the world, we're the only one, God. But God's word comes to us and reminds us that we aren't the only one. That there are others that are his who experience, are experiencing the same thing. He reminds us in his word of his comfort and strength. 
The word of the Lord is our comfort and strength, brothers and sisters. And we end our text with Elijah doing the work that God has called him to do in the strength and power and reminder of God's word to him. It reminds him of God's love and purpose, the purpose that God has called Elijah to, and that God cannot be stopped or silenced, right? No matter what happens in the castle, no matter what happens at the national level, no matter what happens to those who are in power, Elijah, I am still in control. I am still the one who loves you and cares for you. I will not be stopped and silenced. Even the one who God calls Elijah to call as his successor is a gracious reminder to Elijah and to us of who God is. For Elisha means God saves. It is God who saves. It is not the king or his horses. It is not the queen or her men. It is God who saves. And God sends Elisha to remind Elijah and us that the very word of God is our comfort and strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word made flesh in Jesus, your word given to us in written form. Your word whispered to us by your spirit. Lord God, is our comfort and strength. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us, be it through the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, may it be by those that you bring alongside us, or may it be through us hearing your word through the study and quiet space of the Spirit working in our lives. Lord, may we know your comfort and strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.